Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right. So, we talked a lot about chapter 13 last time, did we not? Okay. And we talked about how that chapter drives me nuts. (laughs) because to me, uh, I mean, I kind of have what I think went down in chapter 13, but most of it I tell you to write in pencil because they're not in pen in your mind because there's a lot of assumption and speculation and trying to figure out what you think the scene is um, as we begin to see Saul deteriorate. So there was so much we didn't know between chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're talking lots of years and we have none of the stories. So the narrator chose to give us chapter 13 for a reason. When I look at that, I think the reason is, I think that's the beginning of Saul's spiral. Um, I think that the words of Samuel went deep into his heart, uh, whatever that was. And I think he began to become more insecure He began to question himself, and he definitely began to worry about his kingdom, fear for his kingdom and his legacy and his reputation. And um, after chapter 13, if you remember, Jonathan, because remember, his soldiers are leaving on the daily as he's waiting for Samuel to show up. And then you have the big blow up between he and Samuel. After that, Samuel leaves. And... um, Then Saul takes the army that is remaining and basically joins up together with Jonathan at Gibeah. And then we have the whole story in chapter 14 about how Jonathan and his armor bearer, if you didn't read that part, it's pretty awesome. It says a lot about Jonathan, to be honest. Because if you look, sometimes I look and think, wow, you know, Jonathan would have made a pretty darn good king. If you think about it, he was quite the man, right? Um, And so he goes out and he begins the war with the Philistines by climbing through the crevasse between the two camps. And he starts it up. And pretty much if you read it, he and his armor bearer kill 20 men right off the bat. I mean, to me, they're like uh, they're like choreography, you know, back to back killing people. And there's such a dust up in the camp that over in Gibeah, the guy that is the watchman, the one looking, keeping eye on the enemy camp, realizes something major is going on because it literally says it was like an earthquake going on across. And he's like, what the heck? He goes back to Saul and he tells him what's going on. And Saul goes, who's fighting? Like who went over there? What, what's going on? And so he had everybody basically do a roll call and realizes his own son is missing and his armor bearer and realizes that Jonathan is across in war. You begin to see he's been sitting back in a cave and it's almost like he doesn't know what to do exactly. He, he's kind of hesitant to enter into battle now, which is really interesting because in chapter 13, he was ready for battle. He even possibly went too fast and didn't wait. Maybe he should have waited longer, but he wasn't indecisive. And now all of a sudden you see him being very apprehensive to go to battle. Then he's completely indecisive because he calls the priest a over and he says, all right, 
roll out the Urim and the Thummim and tell me, should we go to battle? And then before the priest can even read the Urim and the Thummim, he says, never mind, we're going to battle. So he's like, okay, ask of God. No, don't ask of God. Let's go to battle. Then he goes into battle and then he gets swept up with this emotion of this great victory. Like he is awesome. He is in control. And then he goes the extreme opposite. He becomes so controlling that he tells his soldiers not to eat until the enemy has absolutely been annihilated. So he calls for a fast. That's real smart. I think your soldiers, when they're fighting a battle, shouldn't eat and should be exhausted and not replenished and for days go ahead and fight. But that's what he did. And in the process, if you remember, his son didn't hear the oath. So what did he do? He ate honey. And so at the end of the day, honestly, it was kind of falling apart because when he got too restricted, number one, he caused his soldiers to sin against the Lord because by that time they were so famished that when the war was finally over or had come to an end, they take all the animals, all the spoilage, and they literally start eating it and preparing it right there. And they ignored the dietary laws about what to do with the blood in the animal. And so he had been so restrictive that when they finally were allowed to eat, they went AWOL. Does that sound familiar? Uh, so sometimes when we're overly restrictive, what can happen? The opposite of what we really desire, right? But then... He was not hearing from the Lord in an instant, and he literally asked the priest to determine why. And when it came down to it, Jonathan's sin was pointed out that he had eaten the honey, and literally Saul was willing to put his own son to death to prove that he was a man of his word, and when he said something, he would keep it. Do you see him spinning all over the place? One minute he doesn't want to go to war. He's sitting back. He's not engaging. The next minute he's like, should I engage? Yes, let's engage. Then he goes. Then he gets too restrictive, too emotional. He's all over the place. Why do you think? Insecure. The words of Samuel are ringing in his mind. Your kingdom will not last. I wonder if Samuel between chapter 12 and 13, I believe Samuel mentored him for many years. I think he cared about the opinion of Samuel. And all of a sudden now he is worried about being a failure. He is spinning out. He cares now, especially what other people think. And he is trying to prove something, not only to everyone and to Samuel, but to himself. And he is very reactionary. That is what you see happening in chapter 14 and chapter 15 is the climax of that because that is when there is no question left in our mind. He's lost his mind because this is where Samuel is sent by God to him. And Samuel says that God wants you to go and annihilate the Amalekites. Now I taught this last year, so I'm not going to teach it in great, great detail if you're interested, you can go back to 1 Samuel that's recorded last year and hear about it. But here's the thing. This was not about victory. This was not about a war of territory. It wasn't about gaining wealth and it wasn't about his reputation. God was asking him to be an agent of judgment on the Amalekites because God had promised way back in the Exodus that he would eventually annihilate the Amalekites for what they had 
had done to the Israelites coming through the wilderness. So when Moses was leading them through the wilderness and they got to the area of Rephidim, the Amalekites, which by the way, were cousins of the Israelites. So it came through the oldest son of Esau. So they were, they were related. When the Israelites were journeying through the wilderness, the Amalekites went out of their way. So out of their own territory, the Israelites didn't go through their territory. The Amalekites came out to attack them. And when they did, they attacked them from the rear, which means they attacked their women and children and elderly and sick. And so they attacked all the weak. And that would be the story, if you remember, of Moses going up on the mountain and raising his hands. And as long as his hands were raised, they would win. But when he began to drop his hands, if you remember, they began to lose. And so Abraham, did I say Abraham? Who, who am I talking about? Moses. I'm losing my mind. Moses. And so Moses had two friends hold his hands up because it was the Lord's battle. And they basically beat the Amalekites, but God promised that he would wipe them basically off the planet as judgment. The Amalekites represent the perpetual enemy of the nation of Israel because you will see that they constantly came back around. For example, Gideon. Gideon fought the Amalekites. The Amalekites joined with the Midianites when Gideon fought them. Um, Later on, we see Samuel fights the Amalekites. Saul fights the Amalekites. You're going to see David fight the Amalekites because at some point it's the Amalekites that come in and literally take David's family and the other people hostage and he has to go get them. Um, In the time of Hezekiah, the family of Simeon attacks the Amalekites. And you're probably familiar with this one if you remember the story of Esther. Esther, remember Haman, the bad guy in that story? He was an Agagite which is the king name, like the Pharaoh of the Egyptians, Agag was the king name to the Amalekites. And so he was there and basically they finally got annihilated, right? And anyone that would have been left, Mordecai would have taken care of. And so at this point though, God has told Saul, sorry, my nose is running. Um, And that's on the film. Aren't we so glad that I video? Um, Saul has told, um, I mean, God has told Saul, I need you to go be, be my arm of judgment. And here's the thing. Saul acted like it was war. He goes out and he, he does conquer the Amalekites. I mean, Saul is leading this army. He is a warrior. He's been a warrior from the time he became king. But what does he do? He allows the people to take the spoilage And he says that they're going to be offered to God as an offering. And maybe he was sincere. Maybe he was saying, well, we will destroy it. But in the end, we're going to destroy it in a way that it has a religious touch. Right. Um, Do you see kind of like a show going on that he's putting on this religious show, showing what a great king he is. And then he kept Agag, if you remember, Alive, probably because just like in war, he probably paraded him through town, showing his dominance. But the point was, he wasn't supposed to keep any of that. Oh, thank you. She gave me a tissue. Um, He wasn't supposed to keep any of that because it wasn't about war. It was about judgment. And here's the thing. God 
did not find this something to be celebrated. When God blots out the enemy, it's not really something he rejoices over. Think about this. Scripture says he wishes all people to come to salvation. It says that God gets no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. He needed Saul to go do a job and just to do the job. It wasn't something that should have been celebrated through the streets that Amalek was completely annihilated. And so it was an act of judgment more than war. And the fact is he did not obey God. There is no question here. Um, There's all kinds of question in chapter 13. There's no question in chapter 15. He has spun out of control and he is celebrating this event. And one of the ways he celebrated it is he made a statue of himself. Who does that remind you of in the Old Testament? If you know the stories, Nebuchadnezzar, that's right. Nebuchadnezzar was famous for making these statues of himself. And what was his greatest downfall? Pride, which by the way, if y'all were at church on Sunday where I or two Sundays ago, amazing message about pride. Okay. But he had all of this pride and that pride really sent him into Looneyville. If you know the story about Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he lived like a wild animal for a while because God, right, had to uh, show him, yes, you are not God. I am God. I will not share my glory with another because Nebuchadnezzar had walked out and said, look at Babylon, which I have created. And so you see this attitude of pride. So you see it in Saul. He's prideful. He's now made a statue. He's celebrating. He literally thinks he has done what God has asked. So when Samuel goes to confront him, right? Samuel basically uh, confronts him with what he's done. And he's like, what are you talking about? I've done exactly what God has said. What do you notice about pride and arrogance? People with pride and arrogance rarely see their own what? Faults. They see everybody else's, but they don't see their own. They seriously have blind spots. So why do you think we should say, like the psalmist, search me and know me, O God. If there be any mess in me, right? Reveal it to me, Lord. Reveal it to me. I want to see it. Because right here, Saul has become so arrogant that even when he is confronted, he really is clueless. How did I not obey? And I love Samuel's remark. Um, what is this lowing of sheep I hear? Like, let's start there. You think you've done it all? Um, yeah. Here you go. And then, and then he's like, well, but I did. And I even kept Agag. Do you not find that funny? The very thing he is using To justify himself is the very thing that what? Accuses him. Because he should not have kept Agag. Have you ever thought about this in the application? Like when you're in an argument and you're trying to prove you're right, and in some ways you're proving you're right so much that you're really proving what? That in some ways you're wrong because you're being so arrogant about the fact of that you're proving yourself right that you're not even seeing what's going on inside of you because you're out justifying your own behavior. And so you see that all of this is happening in Saul. And at that point, Samuel says to him, your kingdom will not last. He goes to 
stop Samuel, Samuel from walking off. And do you remember what happens? He tears Samuel's garment, which should remind you. It's foreshadowing when we get there. Do you remember what happens later on when Saul is uh, doing his business in the cave? He's got the Israelite times and he's just doing his business. Um, and David is in the cave and cuts a portion of, so Samuel is saying, just like my garment, your kingdom will be ripped from you and it will be given to a neighbor. And so you just wonder if when that garment was ripped and David let Saul know, look what I just did. (laughs) Voila, all of that came back. And we're going to talk about that even more when we get there. So at this point, you see in chapter 15, Saul goes through what sounds like repentance. But when you actually read through it, and he might have been in some ways sorry for his behavior, but as you read through it, what he really wants is to save face. What he really wants is to continue to walk through the religious motion, but have no change of heart. And so when you go back, that is a picture of that. And at that point, Samuel does go along with him to a certain extent because the replacement is not there. It's not time for any kind of revolt or removal of the king. So he goes back with Saul, but Saul knows at this point the kingdom is going to be taken from him. So now we enter into David chapter 16. Does all that make sense to you? Okay. That's half power version. You can go back and read through it. Okay. The last thing in chapter 15 says this. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Does that kind of make you sad? But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I want to talk about that. I do think... Samuel absolutely grieved over Saul because I think they spent a lot of time together. I think he mentored him for many years until it went sideways. And I think it broke his heart that it did. And um, I think it is really interesting because he left him um, pretty much knowing, yeah, this is it for us. And it grieved him. But I want you to hear the word where it says, and God regretted in your Bible, it might say repent. And you need to understand the difference of when man repents and when God repents. Both of them have the idea of grief of heart, so emotion. But when man repents, he changes, basically he is changing his will. Okay, so you are recognizing what you've done. You're changing your will, not to be your will, but God's will, and you're changing direction. When God repents, he is willing a change. That's different, okay? Because God's will is sovereign over all. And what he is saying, listen, his will or his plan has not changed. He is just changing direction for how he will proceed with it. So for example, right before the flood, he says what? I am grieved or I repent that I have made man. All right? Is he not all knowing? Of course he is, all right, but he's grieved, so we see the pain of it, but he is willing a change. He is no longer going through that track. He is now going to go through one man, Abraham, and through the nation of Israel. So men, when they repent, they are changing their will, 
when it says God repents, he is willing a change. He's going a different direction. All right. Chapter 16. Here we go. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Let's start at the beginning. Why is he grieving? It starts at this point. I think it is so interesting because God says to him, okay, it's time to stop grieving. Which in that statement tells us that there is time to what? To grieve, right? And so he is grieving. What is he grieving? I don't know. I can close my eyes and think of a lot of things he could grieve, to be honest. He is a very old man. I think he can look back over his life and he can see all of what transpired under his leadership. I think he can grieve the direction of his sons. I think he can grieve the fact that the nation of Israel rejected him and asked for a king. I think he can grieve over the direction that Saul went and how far down he has gone. I think he can grieve over the nation because they've already, they're already in a mess with just one king. He's already gone a bad direction. And now he is seriously old. I mean, he was old when they wanted Saul. Yeah. And he's still sticking around. It's just like when, um, it's like when Abraham decides Sarah has died and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm about to die and I haven't even found a wife for my son. He lives so much longer. You can't believe. But have you ever noticed like you get to the point where like with Abraham, Sarah died. So he's thinking about death and he's old and he's like, okay, I'm going soon. So he gets his affairs in order. I mean, Samuel's been getting his affairs in order for a long time. So now he has to go start the whole process over by anointing David. I don't know about you, but if the blueprint of your life didn't turn out exactly like you thought, sometimes you get stuck in this thing called grief where you go back and you can literally spiral in regret for a long time. Have you ever seen someone? They just can't get out of the past of what happened when and why did this happen? And I shoulda, woulda, coulda. And oh, if only I had. And they grieve over every choice and decision and every direction that caused and where people ended up. And you literally can get consumed by it. I understand that. I truly do. But then at some point, God says what? move on. You have grieved. And so it is time. And it doesn't mean you won't get another wave of grief, but you're not going to sit in it. And so, so many times I've said to you guys, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And that is the point. I love what one commentary said. It says, surely Satan wanted Samuel to remain trapped in mourning 
over the tragedies of the past. He wanted Samuel stuck there, unable to move on with the Lord. But there are times when God tells us to simply move on. This is what God told Moses at the shores of the Red Sea. Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. It was time for Samuel to go forward. Swindoll says this, had he begun to panic? But we must realize that behind the scenes before God ever flung the stars into space, God had today in mind. He had this very week in mind. In fact, he had you in mind. And he knew exactly what he was going to do. God is never at a loss to know what he's going to do in our situations. He knows perfectly well what is best for us. Our problem is we don't know. That makes us live by faith. When a man or a woman of God fails, nothing of God fails. When a man or woman of God changes, nothing of God changes. When someone dies, nothing of God dies. When our lives are altered by unexpected, nothing of God is altered or unexpected. Isaiah 65, 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Before you even utter a word, he's already part of the answer. Isn't that so good to know? So he tells Samuel what to do, exactly what to do. He says, you go and you go take an offering. And I think it is interesting that Samuel is a little doubtful. Do you find that interesting? He says, it is time for you to go anoint another king. And then all of a sudden, what do you notice in this great man? Do you sense a little fear? A little lack of trust maybe going on? Because basically, he, uh, he knows what he's supposed to do, but then he begins to question what? Because he goes from worrying about what to do, and then he worries about, well, how am I going to do that? If you're like me, if you ever spin in fear, I swear to you, I can be afraid. I, I can worry about one thing, jump to the next thing, and jump to the next thing in about 60 seconds. So what do you want me to do? Okay, but how am I going to do that? Um, I remember one day Ashley Wildridge said this, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. If he's called him to do it, do you not think he's got it under control? And so he literally tells him to bring uh, this offering to Bethlehem to sacrifice. I think it is interesting that it reminds me a lot of when he was anointing Saul. Because remember, God had come to him the day before and said a young man is going to show up. And when he gets there, I'll point him out, and this is what I want you to do. But at that time, I don't see any fear. Why is he fearing now? Because when he anointed Saul, Samuel was the leader. He was the judge. He was the man in charge. He didn't have crazy Saul to worry about. All right? And so now God gives him a direction, and he has a man to fear, so this command may mean his life. And so he is worrying about, how do I go about doing this? Meanwhile, when all of this is being talked about, I love uh, this one commentary that talks about David. So while all this is going on, this is what David's life is probably like. No angel trumpet heralded it. No faces looked out of heaven. The sun arose that morning according to his wont over the purple walls of the hills of Moab, making the cloud curtains saffron and gold. When the first glimmer of light, the boy was on his way to lead his flock to pasture lands heavy with dew. 
As the morning hours sped onward, many duties would engross his watchful soul, strengthening the weak, healing the sick, binding up the broken, and seeking that which is lost. And possibly the music of his song filled the air. What is the point? It was any other day for David. He had no idea what was about to transpire. Who does that remind you of? Saul. Saul went out looking for donkeys and came back with a crown. He had no idea his life was about to change. The same thing with David. He has no idea. It's an ordinary day. He's a shepherd. He's just living that day. He has no idea he's about to be called in to be anointed the next king over Israel. And he sure as heck doesn't know what, how long it's going to be before he's actually crowned. Here's the point. You never know what the day holds. That might scare you to death or it might give you great hope. Because here's the thing. Don't ever make permanent decisions with what? Feelings that are not permanent, right? Because today you may be feeling a certain way. People may get depressed. You may think life is so dark, there's no way out. But you don't make permanent choices off of non-permanent feelings because in a moment your life can change. Isn't that good? You can be so depressed and meet someone in your life and in one moment, life's great. You could be living life great and some tragedy happens and in a moment, what? You experience pain like you've never. You have no idea what's coming. So the idea to me that we control anything or that there actually is security, the security we try to hold on to or we need, is there really such a thing? Because in a moment, a decision can be made, something can happen, and your world can change in that day, and you have no idea what is in store. And if you look at that in the positive, that's pretty cool. And so David has no idea. I love the fact that the elders say to Samuel, are you here coming in peace? What does that tell you about the environment? It's hostile. Why? Well, the two greatest men in the land are now at odds. He is showing up, and they are a little bit concerned as to why this old prophet is showing up in their area and don't think for one minute that they do not know Saul and Samuel are at odds. Because word travels there, just like here, it's just slower. They don't have Instagram. All right, it took a little bit longer. Verse five says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I want to make sure you understand that in the Old Testament. That does not mean he's rejected him as a person. He does not love him. He doesn't accept him. This is the language of anointing, meaning I have rejected him for this job. So it's the same as if you know the verses that say, um, even before they were born, it says, and God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And you're like, that is so unfair. How could God hate Esau? He's not even born and God doesn't hate. It's the language of being chosen for a, a job. He was going to choose to bring the one through Jacob. The greater question is not how God could hate Esau. The greater question is how could he love Jacob? Neither one deserved it. Do you understand? That's called grace. And so sometimes when we hear the language of the Old Testament, we almost try to christianize it 
And it's not the same. It is a calling. He rejected Saul as king. He rejected Eliab as a choice. He's not going to be a choice to be king. And so he says, I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't this interesting? This prophet, great prophet, when he sees the lineup, he goes straight for the guy of stature. Why? Because that's what they've had. I mean, that guy looks a lot like Saul. He looks like he would be a king. Well, the problem is we're not after someone who looks like a king. We need them to actually be a king, right? But it also shows us, hey, if he's prone to judge by outward appearance, so are we. We do it all the time. And all through the Old Testament, clothing and outer appearance are often synonymous with betrayal. It betrays. Outer appearance often betrays. And so you have this idea and he is going straight off of outer appearance and we do it all the time. I mean, did you marry your husband because you weren't automatically attracted to him because he was just a dog the first time you saw him? But you wanted to get to know his inside. So you sat down and had no. You're telling me you don't make judgments on how people look or how they dress or how they hold themselves or first appearances or any of that. We often judge on outer appearance. But God says what? I judge the heart. Well, that scares the crud out of me too, right? Because if he judges the heart, the question is, well, how good is my heart? And then when you begin to think, let me ask you this, how much time do you spend on your outer self? How much time of your day do you spend on um, how you dress, how you look, your weight? How much time do you spend making a resume? How much time do you spend working in your yard and your house and all of the things that are basically outer compared to how much time do you spend on your heart? Well, if that's the case, then I can make an assumption. You care more, I care more about what people think than what God thinks. Because if he says, I don't judge based on all that, that's not what interests me. What interests me is the heart. So if I'm spending the majority of my time on other stuff that is not my heart growing in my heart, then that means I really care more about what you guys think than who? God, and how can I be so harsh on Saul? Because I think that's the trap he got caught in, in his insecurity. Because at one point, by the way, if you go back and read, I believe it's chapter 15, verse 17. I don't know why I remember that. But I'm pretty sure at that moment, Samuel says, you know what? The problem is, Saul, you think so little of yourself. So it shows his insecurity. Um, so it goes on and it says, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. I bet that just burned those brothers up. <laughs> Which, by the way, we're going to meet Eliab later, and you're going to see why God did not choose him. He's already prideful. 
Saul didn't even seem to start out that way. And power corrupts. So can you imagine if you started that way? And you got it because at one point when he's facing Goliath, Eliab is going to be, hello, punk. What are you doing here? Why aren't you off keeping your stinky little sheep? Do you hear the arrogance in that? Because all you did is to come here to instigate because you wanted to see a battle. That's why. So that's Eliab. So we're kind of glad he didn't choose him. But they have to stand up and wait for David, who's going to come running in smelling like stinky sheep. And it says, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Interesting. It is very significant that Jesse did not even realize David wasn't in the room. He wasn't even a thought. Think of the difference in the background between Saul and David. Let's make some comparisons. All right. So in this case, literally this dad did not even give him a thought. In Saul's case, he was gone for three days and the dad was having a heart attack thinking something happened to Precious. And he actually sent him with a servant to watch over him. And in this case, if you want to be truthful, David was the servant because the idea of being a shepherd, you would have given that to a servant. You would not have given that job to the son unless you had no servants. And then guess who got the job? The punk brother, the little brother, lowest man on the totem pole. And so he comes in. So you see very different backgrounds going on here with David versus Saul, which I find interesting because we've talked about this. This last weekend, I was in um, so where was I? Southern California, and I was ministering with a new praise and worship girl, and she's awesome. Her name is Stacy, and she wrote a song called Storms, and she wrote it for her children. And she was talking about the fact how when her kids were young, she every time they left the house, she would give all these warnings. Hey, be careful. Stay on the street. Don't talk to strangers. And literally, she said, I would do nothing but send out warnings after them of everything they needed to remember. And she said, honestly, if I could have, I think I would have wrapped them entirely in bubble wrap when I sent them out the door because I didn't want any bad thing to happen to them. I didn't want them to get hurt in any way. And she says, but as they began to grow up, I realized, wait a minute, but the characteristics that I want to see in my kids that are important, and she listed all these beautiful characteristics, um, none of those come from bubble wrap kids. All of those characteristics are typically formed, right, through suffering, through struggle, through pain, and she said, So I stopped wishing them sunshiny days every day and I started praying for storms. And so she wrote this song that says, I wish you storms. Because through the storms, at the end of the day, after the storm, you'll find yourself on undreamed shores, places you never thought. And all of those characteristics will be formed in my children as they go through storms. I see this in Saul versus David. Because it seems to me that Saul almost had everything going for him and he really had a hard time 
when it got tough and with failure and he was proving to be what everybody had told him he was his whole life. And David, he started off, nobody gave him words from the get-go, right? And so you almost see a very different attitude. The point is the spirit of God rushed onto him. The great aspects of David's life are not because David had all of this unlimited talent or potential. It's because the power of God was in him. And this is so important. He walked in the house, a normal kid, smelling like sheep, nothing special. Matter of fact, if you look at the Hebrew, it literally just means just a good looking normal Hebrew boy. Really? Like just one, you just want to go, ooh, like just nothing that stood out. He was a head and shoulders. He was just a good looking like, what a cute young Hebrew guy. And, but then when the power of God came upon him, he was amazing. Listen to this commentary because I think it's brilliant. Contemporary North American society would have us all be Saul's instead of David. And for the most part, the church repeats these lies in Christianized forms. Thus, we teach our people that they are special, unique, like snowflakes. In one sense, of course, this is true. We each have unique DNA, fingerprints, and defining experiences. But in another more profound sense, none of us is all that special. Yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image, But we do the Bible a great disservice when we try to show that these truths lead to self-esteem boosting and puffing up of our egos. When the prophet Elijah, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, was according to James, a man with a nature like ours. What does that mean? Elijah was what? Normal. He was a normal human being. What made him so special? The power of God, the spirit of God in him. David was ordinary. We are ordinary. Accepting this is a big first step in being used by God because Christianity is a large collection of nobodies worshiping a great big what? Somebody. Here's the thing. I think the problem is in some ways in the old generation, the kids were second The parents were coming back from war. They were getting everything together. It was really an adult world and the kids were like be seen and not heard. And it's almost like those that were raised, like it's always like we respond 180 degrees, the extreme opposite. And now all of a sudden it is not that it is the opposite where it's a kid's world and we rotate around them. And from the beginning, we fill them with because we love them and we want them to know how awesome they are and we want to encourage them. But we have told this whole generation, you're special. You're so special. There's not another one like you. And God has a purpose and a plan, which is true. But it comes across like what? There is some marvelous plan out there that is woven just for you and it is and you need to discover it like an Easter egg hunt and there and it's marvelous and so the problem is they're looking for this unique opportunity to serve God that's only for them and the fact is they need to get a dang job and be normal right and what is God's will to love him and people every day Because what? You never know what's going to happen in a day and you never know what door is going to open. But the fact is, if we tell each and every one of them that they're just special, do you know that we've negated the very idea of that word? No, you're normal. 
Some of you may have exceptional talents and things and other things, but you're a normal human being. That's what you are. And so in some cases, we have almost entitled them ourselves. And the point of scripture is, no, these were normal people that were empowered by an abnormal, amazing, supernatural God. Because if you go down through scripture, there is nothing about Joseph that would have taken him from being a foreign criminal in Egypt to being second in command, right? That's the power of God. What about Gideon? You think Gideon was so unique and special that he was able to defeat the Midianites with 300? No. What was it? It was the power of God. That's what it was. Esther, a normal, ordinary Jewish woman in the kingdom of Persia, and it just so happens that she saves her entire nation from annihilation? I mean, really? Or how about the early church that literally gave their lives going up against the Roman Empire. They were ordinary people filled with the power of an extraordinary God. And that is what they were. And I, this line right here has stuck with me. Too many of us have tried to become David by pursuing the path of Saul. Let that sink in. I could like write that in my journal and journal about it forever. Too many of us have tried to become David. Why do we want to become David, by the way? How's he described? He's a man after God's own heart, and that's what we all want. We want to be like David, the heart of David. But the fact is, most of the time we go about it really trying to be more like Saul. And we have told them, oh, wow, look at his stature. Look how good he is at that. Oh, my gosh, he's exceptional. He's projected to do this. Oh, my word, the whole world rotates around him. This is all great. But yet we want him to have the heart of David. But we're going about it by encouraging all the things of Saul. And so I agree with the girl that I served with. I agree with Stacy. I wish them storms. I never did before. And I had to flip my switch because I used to pray, oh God, can you just come down and help my kids and just let them be happy? Because to be honest, if they can't be happy, I can't be happy. And I just take away these problems and remove this. And and I literally would tell God exactly what to do. I need you to remove this. I need you to do this. I need you to strike this person on the phone. I'm just kidding. And I mean, I would just tell him all of this stuff because I wanted them out of pain. And now I have flipped my switch. Don't get me wrong. I hate it. But I am like, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this trial. Keep them in it as long as it takes for them to learn all that you need them to learn. Because I do want them to be like David. I want them to have a heart of God, for God. I want them to have that. And I'm, and I'm realizing all the poor doctrine in some ways I've exemplified in uh, making them think life is easy and putting myself on the throne to be God to solve all their problems. And no wonder they're confused about who God is and what his motives are and why they have to suffer. And if you love me, wouldn't you be like my mom and fix all my problems? And so it's a lot. I think we could journal about that line right there. Too many of us 
have tried to become David by pursuing the path of Saul. Okay, I'm going to introduce this next part and then we're going to come back to it in two weeks because it is a doozy. So are you ready? Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Does that bother anybody? All right. It bothers you because you are a New Testament group. You have to realize that in the Old Testament, they were not indwelt by the spirit. Jesus had not died on the cross. He had not paid the penalty. Mercy was not released. The spirit was not released to dwell in mankind. He was still dwelling, if you remember, in temples, in tabernacles. And so what would happen is the spirit would come upon someone. You'll notice the language in the Old Testament. The spirit would come upon you to empower you to do a job. All right. Because all through the Old Testament, you're going to see like even with Samson and the spirit of God came upon him and with the jawbone of the donkey, you know, it, it'll tell you. And so you have to think of it like that. So basically what it is saying is that the spirit of God departed from Saul or the empowerment for him to be the king, that choice, that empowerment, when the new king was anointed, it went from Saul to who? To David. All right. So you just think about that. It's not that the love of God was removed from him. God didn't care about Saul anymore. It's a completely different thing. And if you think that bothers you, wait till you see the next phrase, because I want you to understand that when that empowerment was removed from him, he felt it. Okay. It says a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. If you read that by yourself, wouldn't that bug you if you didn't look into that? And a harmful spirit by the Lord tormented him. Okay, I'm going to read you some facts. I'm going to sum it up a little bit, and then we're going to come back next time. The Jewish people knew God was sovereign over all things. Therefore, they credited all events to him in the sense that nothing happens without him allowing it, even if he's not the agent of delivery. Okay. They viewed God as the all-powerful, which he is, sovereign God over all things. Nothing takes him by surprise. He is in charge. Nothing can happen unless he allows it. Do we agree with that? Yes. But allowing and being the delivering agent are two different things. So, for example, when you look at Job, Satan had to come and ask permission of God to sift Job, right? When you look at the demoniac on the shores of the Decapolis, the guy uh, possessed by demons, when they saw Jesus, what happened? They fell on their face and they asked for mercy. He had to allow them to be sent in to the swine. So he is sovereign over all in the sense that he will allow it, but he is not the agent of it. And we're going to look a little more. Jewish thinking was this. The writers often give him credit and motives. Let me give you some examples. Do you remember when it said in Genesis, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel's was barren. So what are they saying? What's the narrator saying? That the Lord had a motive, that he actually opened Leah's womb with a motive because she wasn't loved. And because Rachel was loved, she was barren. That's what the narrator wrote. They're giving God a what? A motive. 
They're doing that because they, in their mind, are thinking, if, God, if someone is barren, then what? God has allowed it. And if Leah is having a child over Rachel, then what? God must know she's not loved. We do this too. How about this? Jacob said to Rachel, am I in the place of God who has withheld the fruit of your womb? So he's giving God really blame the fact that she's barren. And this one is especially bad. Do you remember when Rachel decides, okay, this is not working. So I'm going to give you my maidservant, Bilhah. You're going to sleep with Bilhah and he does and she has Dan. And this is what she says. God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. So do you really think God Almighty looked between Leah and Rachel in this big cat fight that they're having and said, you know, in this instant, I think it was a great move for you to give Bilhah to your husband. And so I'm going to vote for you this time. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a son and you can name him Dan. Do you think that's it? No. The narrator, the Jewish thinker was like, God allowed it. And very often you will see motive given to him. Hannah even said the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. So how do you like that? Okay. So keep thinking of that. And then listen to this. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. John, 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We're going to explore this a little bit more, but here's the thing. Um, I'm going to give you an example, okay? And then I'll be done. So, talking to a young man who is heartbroken and struggling with a breakup. Okay, and I've used this, you know, idea before to where you're praying and praying and praying. I want this person in my life. This is what I want. Can't get over it. This is what I want. And so you've been taught this doctrine by Christian people who say, listen, God wants to give you the desire of your heart. So you pray. And if that's what you desire, you ask God for it. But then you say, but God, if that's not what you want from me, please remove that desire. And I get that. I really do. Because what we're saying is, Lord, I want to desire what you desire. But that's not how it comes across to a lot of young people. How it comes across is this. God, either give me what I want or what? Take the desire so I don't hurt. And that's just not good doctrine because what is he, like a magic bullet? He's going to come down and either give us what we want or he's going to remove all pain so we never hurt. We don't have to walk through rejection. We don't have to walk through being alone. We don't have to do any of that. That uh, brings all kinds of character. He's just going to remove the pain. It's just going to be either I get what I want or I don't hurt. All right. So then you keep praying. Lord, if this is going to work, please just bring this person back around. So the person comes back around, but the person's no different, right? So what happens? Same crud. It's, it's bad. You get hurt again. So then you're like, well, wait a minute, but I prayed. I prayed that God would bring her back around and he did, right? Here's the, here's the thing. The question is, did God bring her back around? Why did you just give that motive to God? So God literally brought her back around because you prayed for it? Or could it be that she brought herself back around? That in free will, she made the decision to scratch that scab off. 
she made the decision to come back in. Okay. Now, did God allow it? Yes, he allows a lot in free will. But be careful what you think God might allow and what you think God causes. Because to allow is different than being the agent of delivery. Do you understand that? And so could it be that in free will, he's allowing free will to reign. And this is going to come back around, which eventually you're going to realize that what you really want is you want her, you want this person back and you want God to fix all of her problems too and change her into someone else so that the whole darn thing will work, which in the meantime, he also needs to fix your wounds and do all that. So there's a really a lot you're asking for in this situation. Could it be that he's allowing free will to take place until finally over time you might realize what? I don't have a desire for this anymore. And while he's doing that, guess what you're learning? How to survive and not make permanent choices on temporary feelings. Not check out because you think the world's going to end because you're heartbroken. That you're going to have stamina. You're going to learn to press on even when you're hurting. You're going to learn that feelings aren't truth. You're going to learn all kinds of stuff in the process of pain because you didn't get what you wanted. And then maybe you did and it didn't turn out too good. That's life. And so we very often do the exact same thing that the Old Testament people do. And in our idea of the sovereign God and what he allows, we have a hard time understanding the fact that he allows free will. And what we start to do is we start to give him credit for everything that happens. Then it makes us mad. Then we think he's mean. Then we don't understand him. Then we think he doesn't love us because he did this. He did that. He did this. And man, you can get into a spiral of really bad doctors. Does that make any sense? Because I counsel people on that. And then I have to also get on my face to be quite honest and go, Lord, do not let me be like Saul who thinks he knows everything and shows up and says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I see all that in everybody else. But what about me? Well, guess what? I need prophets in my life that go, well, Shannon. And I'm like, well, rude. I don't even want to be your friend. Right? But everybody needs that because we all have blind spots and they need to be pointed out. And I have those friends. And that's awesome. And so this is the fun stuff of Bible study. So this is what I want to encourage you to do. Get your face in it. The Old Testament is exciting. It's interesting. Can I tell you how much it applies? I think it's great counseling. And to be honest, uh, and you don't have to put this in this video, this last weekend, I, ne I don't ever teach the thing the same way. I don't know what it is, but I just get on a roll. And I was teaching Hannah, and I was talking about your love cup. I've talked to you about that before, about if you want your love cup filled by somebody else, you're going to be hurt, right? Because the only one that can fill it is God. Well, right before I did that, and every now and then I will say this, and I was, I was being funny, but transparent. And I said, okay, y'all listen to me now. I'm about to tell you some good information that cost me $285 an hour. Okay. And then I go into it. I didn't think anything of it, right? I just do it. It's a way that I can be a little transparent, but be funny. At the end of the deal, I walk out and there is a woman and she is bawling, talking to one of our Aspire women. 
And she's telling her story and she said she wasn't going to come to this event because she's in a really bad, bad place. And I remember her when she first came in because she was crabby as crud. Like people are like, what is wrong with this woman? She is so grumpy. We had no idea what was going on in her life, right? And so she shares that the only reason she came is someone once told her that when you're depressed, there's one major thing you do is you always keep your commitments. So she had volunteered at the compassion table for Compassion International, and she decided she was going to go because she had made a commitment. And she said, and I came today just for that reason. I was in no way in the mood to be at this event, but I needed to be here because I needed to hear Shannon's sermon because I am right where she was describing. And she said, and the one thing that hit me the most was when she said, and let me tell you, this cost me $285 an hour. And in all of that, she finally realized, you know, I think I might need some help. And if Shannon, who's up there teaching the Bible, just in many ways told us she's been in counseling for quite some time, and it's cost her $285 an hour, which my gosh, counselors are so expensive, that by the time you're done with them, you need counseling because you had to pay what you did. So I was telling them, listen, I'm telling you all this stuff for free. Like I paid for it, you know? It was all good. And she walked away with a piece in the Christian community that she could actually go get help by a counselor. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your scripture. Lord, there's so many things we could learn from this story. We don't need to judge by on the outer. We need to take time to get to know someone's story. Because if I judge from that woman's behavior when she walked in the door, I would have immediately wrote her off, written her off. And the fact is she was hurting. Lord, we judge people every day based on what they look like, how tall they are, how talented they are, how well they speak, where they went to school, where they live, all these things that do not matter. Lord, I pray that you would, you would convict me to spend more time working on my inner soul, my heart, because that is what you care about. And to be honest, that's what matters because I am 100% normal and nothing can be done except through the power of the Spirit. There is not one word in and of myself I could say that would be persuasive enough to change a life. There is only the Holy Spirit that can go in and draw a soul. And so God, in many ways, I hope we leave here realizing, yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made and you love us and you've knit us together and you gave your life for us. Your love for us is worth dying for. And yes, you do have a purpose for us. But Lord, we're normal. But you are not. And so God, I pray that we would humbly come without this pride nonsense. And that we would come and submit our lives to you and allow you to use our story exactly how it is. Don't even fancy it up or put band-aids on the bad parts. But we would just be willing to open our lives for you to use because that is power. Lord, we love you. Be with us. Keep these women until I see them in two weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.